You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. They're juking me out, making me think y'all are done singing, and then I get up on stage and feel all awkward because y'all still singing. Well, this has been a uh, crazy couple weeks. I was sitting in my room today kind of working on the night and just kind of had this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's already October. And then I was like, wait a second, it's like just the beginning of September. I feel like we've been at this already for like eight weeks. It's, it's just been, it's been a long few weeks, but it's been a fun and crazy few weeks. Uh, this past weekend, we had some fun events. One of our events we did was the freshman uh, fishbowl and fajitas. Um, which was a blast. We'd never done that before. It was kind of a new thing we were trying, and man, so many people came, and it was fun. And I, I jokingly, very jokingly, at the beginning of the night, I said, uh, I really hope the cops show up at some point, because that's when you know it's a party. And uh, well, the cops showed up, so uh, <laughs> apparently like, you know, half the people that came had illegally parked, and so they were very gracious to not ticket about 50 cars. Um, but uh, man, it's been fun, and, and I'm just... I feel like I'm going a little bit rogue tonight, um, you know, as we're studying how to date, mate, procreate, but as, <clears throat> honestly this week, as, as, as I've just been kind of processing some, some things, and, and it's weird when this one particular thing happened, but so like sometimes, you know, like on, on Twitter, I'll, I'll post something, and I'm just trying to be goofy, you know, um, or, you know, say something dumb, and I, and I don't remember what I said, but I, I posted something up there that was like, just meant to be funny, and, and it, you know, there was nothing wrong with it. I mean, it may not have been funny, but there was nothing wrong with what I posted, but it was something about, you know, kind of what we're doing as a ministry or as a church, and, and I posted it. It was meant to be funny, and as soon as I, 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 I clicked send or tweet or whatever it says, I, I just had this sickening feeling come over my, my heart, my stomach, and I don't know honestly why this happened, I mean, other than the obvious reasons, but but I just, my mind immediately began to think about all of, all of the Christians around the world. Like, when I say Christians around the world, what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is if you're a Christian, these are your, these are my brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. And I started to think about all these people around the world who are, who are suffering like crazy. And I'm not just talking about people in Iraq and Syria. We've been reading that. That's all over the news right now. And the crazy stuff that's happening to them. But, you know, I, I have a couple uh, news websites that I, that I use, there's one or two that actually their whole focus is advocacy for the persecuted church. And like just reading today through some of the headlines just from the past couple days was insane. I mean, crazy headlines, uh, Christians in, in Nepal, in, in Bangladesh, India, uh, all over different countries in Africa, Nigeria, um, Central African Republic, Cameroon, uh, Mali, all these places China and East Asia being just dramatically, dramatically persecuted. I mean, there's, there's maybe more Christians being beat up, imprisoned, uh, starved out, ostracized, and killed right now in this moment, in this moment as I speak, than any other moment in the history of the world. And this thought just hit me, and then this thought followed up. It's so easy to be a Christian here. It's so easy to be a Christian here. Like over there, there's absolutely nothing to gain from calling yourself a Christian unless you really mean it and it's true. But here, we have really nothing to lose in calling ourselves a Christian, even if we don't mean it and it's not true. 
It's so easy to be a Christian here, and, 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 and for them, for, for them in places that are being persecuted, for them to call themselves Christians, they have to be committed even to the point of death. For us to call ourselves Christians, honestly, we don't really have to be committed to anything. There's such a huge difference between them and between us, between, between us, Christians in Denton, and, and Christians in places in the world that are being persecuted. And I've had this conversation with people, some of you before, and the response is always this. Well, look, I mean, you can't even really compare the two. Those people are living in places where, where everybody's hostile towards Christianity or there's some severe hostility towards Christianity. We don't really have that here, so you can't compare the two. You, it's just, there's just no comparison to be made. But the problem with that response is the difference between us and them is not our context. The difference between us and them is our convictions. See, they are fully convinced that what Jesus has to offer them is better than anything else that this world has to offer them. Now, we, we say that we're fully convinced of that, yet we follow Jesus, and maybe put quotes around follow. We say we're fully convinced, just like they are, but we follow Jesus only to the point to where if we were to go any further, we would have to begin giving up certain things that at this point we have shown that we are very unwilling to give up. And, and as I'm thinking about this stuff, there's been a text, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, which go and turn there. That's where we're going to start tonight. This text, God has just been like waging war on my soul with over the past two, three weeks. I almost taught this text the very first week of overflow. And, and now I think it's finally beginning to piece together to where it's, it's time for us to, uh, to, to dig into it. And it's going to fit perfectly in our series. But in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus is talking and he says this, enter by the narrow gate. You might just underline that. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus says very clearly, like you can't make any mistake about it, he says very clearly, enter through the narrow gate. He's given us this very clear command, yet many of us who claim to be following Jesus are still standing outside the gate. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, yet many of us who claim to follow Jesus are still standing outside the gate. And by standing outside the gate, we're basically choosing to, instead of go through the narrow gate, to go through the wide gate. And let me tell you why it's so dangerous for us to stand outside the narrow gate. There's a couple reasons. One is this. You can stand outside the gate and you can still know a lot about the gate. Like if you're standing, and I, and I want you, you know, Jesus, he used pictures because he wanted us to get the pictures in our brains. So as I'm talking about this, I want you to envision like an actual gate. And the thing is, if you stand outside the gate, you can still know a lot about the gate. You know where it is, you know what it is, you know what it looks like, you know very well what it would take to cross through the gate. And as I was running this through with Jay Wood and Wag earlier, Jay Wood said, you can still point people to the gate. We know a lot about Jesus. We, we know what he did. We know, if we read scripture, that he is the gate. I mean, in theory, at least, we know these things. We're very well aware of what the Bible says it takes to have life. So standing outside the gate, it's so dangerous because you're close enough to the gate to where you can know so much about it that you're convinced you've crossed through it even though you haven't. 
Another reason it's so dangerous to stand outside the gate is you can see on the other side of the gate. You can see that narrow path on the other side of the gate. And because of that, you, you know what the path on the other side looks like. And even though you yourself have never set foot on that path, you can talk about it as if you have because you can stand there at the gate and you can watch other people who are walking on the path. It's almost like you vicariously live out a life on the other side of the gate just through watching people who are on the other side of the gate on that path. Following what I'm saying? It's, it's a secondhand relationship with God. That's what it is. But here's the thing. A secondhand relationship is not a relationship at all. And, and if I can be quite frank with you, and I say this out of love and out of grace, but out of urgency, many of you in this room, that's all you have is a secondhand relationship with God. You're standing outside the gate. It's, 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 you're standing outside the gate listening to what others say about their experience of walking on that narrow path, reading about what other people are writing about their experience of what they're getting on that narrow path. But you yourself are yet to set foot there and experience it. And so it's dangerous to stand outside the gate because you're close enough to the narrow path to where you can know so much about it that you're convinced you're walking on the narrow path even though you're not. So, so we say with our mouths that we're fully convinced that Jesus is better than anything else in the world, yet so many of us have stopped short of entering through the narrow gate. And the reason for that is this. In order to pass through the gate, what we realize is that in, the, in, in it being a narrow gate, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to let go of in order to get through the narrow gate. And up to this point, we've been unwilling, and many of you are unwilling, to let go of those things. So uh, a couple years ago, uh, every, every summer we take a group to Collegiate Week up in, uh, Santa, or outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in Glorieta. Uh, who, who's been with us Collegiate Week? Let me, let me hear you. Okay. Quite a few, that's good. Uh, Collegiate Week is one of my favorite weeks of the year. We're going to go this next year. Uh, it's, it's awesome. You're in the mountains, and, and it's in this place called Glorieta, New Mexico, which is about 20 miles outside of Santa Fe. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Fe, but everybody for some reason wants to go to Santa Fe. I hate going to Santa Fe because all it is is shopping, and it's all like stuff that's way overpriced or just like this turquoise jewelry, and I have no place for that in my life. So, but people always want to go, and so uh, the past two years I have successfully manipulated my group into not going. We've done other things instead. Uh, but two years ago, I did not succeed in this, and so we had to take two 15-passenger vans down into Santa Fe, New Mexico. Was anybody on this trip? You know where I'm going with this story. Okay. So uh, we took two 15-passenger vans down there. One of the reasons I hate going to Santa Fe is because um, everybody at Glorietta, Collegiate Week, goes on the same day, and there's about 2,000 college students there, and so it's like Christianity descends on Santa Fe around noon uh, on, this, on, this, on this one day, and so Santa Fe is not that big, and it, it shows that all of us Christians are there because there's all these like church vans and buses and all this stuff. And so there's no parking as it is, but now there's especially no parking. So we're driving around these 15-passenger vans trying to find a place to park so we can eat uh, at a restaurant where we're going to have to wait for three hours for, and the food's not even that good. It's fake Mexican food. <laughs> but, but we're driving around. We can't find anywhere to park. And I'm in the lead, which is a really bad idea. I'm driving this 15-passenger van rented out from Enterprise. Uh, let's delete that because I, I, don't, I don't want Enterprise to listen to this and us get in trouble. But uh, so anyways... We, uh, I, we're driving, and I see this parking garage, and I'm fed up at this point because we've been driving for like 20, 30 minutes and found nothing. And so I'm like, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to take a shot, uh, which anybody in their sane mind would know that not only was that a parking garage not for a 15-passenger van, that was a parking garage for compact cars only. Uh, but we pull up to the parking garage, and it's got one of those things that kind of hangs down that says, you know, seven foot or whatever foot clearance. So I got my intern at the time. His name uh, is Rob Stewart. Um, and he gets out, and I was like, hey, Rob, I want you to watch as we pull up to this thing and, and tell me if we're going to be okay and clear it. 
So he gets out, and he's walking by the van, and he's like, come on, keep coming, keep coming. And we get up to it, and you know, those things are hanging by chains, right? And so I was going so slow, I didn't hear it begin to lay on the top of my car, uh, the van. And he goes, yeah, you're good, you're good, you're going to clear it just fine. I don't think he understands how those things work. But anyways, we get into the parking garage, and we start to go up the ramp, okay? Now here's the thing, like, you, you, don't, you, you have to be committed uh, when you get to this parking garage, because there's only one way out. And that is up and around and up and around, and then there's like a public exit on the top side of the parking garage. Well, so we start to go up the ramp, and it's so close that, you know, the antenna, every little, you know, barrier thing, it just goes, you know. And so I'm freaking out. Rob is still walking beside the van, just saying, okay, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good. And all of a sudden, he just goes, stop! Reverse, 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 reverse. And I'm like... Okay, so I slam it in reverse, but, like, I put it in reverse, and there's, there's really nowhere to reverse. Like, I back up a little bit, and then there's, like, this sharp, you know, less than 90-degree turn to get back. So I'm now trying to back this 15-passenger van up, and so I back it up, and I start to make the turn. He's now walking on the backside of the van, and again, he starts to yell, stop, 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 reverse, reverse. I'm like, I'm in reverse. I don't have anywhere to go, my friend. And so what I've realized is I have gotten this 15-passenger van stuck inside this uh, parking garage, all the while, um, there's another 15-passenger van of ours uh, parked outside the parking garage, and they've got their windows down, and they're just laughing, rolling as they're watching me in here. But uh, So now we're stuck, and we have this situation of like, okay, well, crud, uh, you know, we can't go up, and uh, we can't go back. Uh, we can sort of go that way, but that's the entrance, and the bar is down. We don't have a way to get out. So luckily, the attendant was working up top, so Rob went and got them pleaded with him to open up the gate. So now I have to make this like sharp 90 degree turn to get through the gate. And uh, as I'm doing that, I can't make the turn. So my back wheel hits this uh, kind of this concrete median. And I'm like, I'm looking, I have my window down because I'm talking to the, to the attendant guy. And he's like, you're good, you're good. And then I just feel it hit. And it's like, okay, crud. Uh, I have two options here. Um, I either don't get this van out of here or I just gun it and I go and deal with the consequences. So, like, I hit, and he goes, oh, I think you're stuck. And I just looked at him, and I just gassed it, man. And it just goes, boom, boom, and my, my roof of my van hits the top of that parking garage, and you just hear it go, as I go out, and I just drive off. And uh, anyways, uh, so we haven't been back to Santa Fe since. But, but all joking aside, I, I love this illustration. It's so perfect because, listen to me, some of you, some of you, when it comes to your relationship with Christ, you're like, yeah, I want you, Jesus. You're like, yeah, I want you, Jesus, but on one condition. I, I get to bring my 15-passenger van full of all this stuff that I want to keep. My dreams, my plans, my pride, my porn, my whatever it is. So you're like, yeah, I want Jesus, but, but you want Jesus on your terms. And that's not how it works. You don't get to have Jesus on your terms. The only way you get Jesus is if you get him on his terms, and his terms are very clear. He says, repent and believe. It's the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. This is a concept that a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was martyred in the 1940s uh, during the whole Holocaust situation. He was a believer. Um, he wrote a book called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And in chapter one, he, he brings up this idea of cheap grace versus costly grace. And I want to read what he says about both. This is kind of summed up from his words. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. In such a church where cheap grace is found, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. 
In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. Cheap grace means the justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. He goes on to say, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, in fact, grace without Jesus Christ. And then he goes on a little further into the chapter and he describes costly grace. And costly grace, he says, costly grace is the gospel which we must sought again and again. He essentially says, this is what we've got to fight for. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. The Bible says, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to be too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So I feel like the place we've got to start tonight is this. Have you entered through the narrow gate? Like, have you really, have you really placed your trust in Jesus? Have you really come to the point where you have entrusted to him your heart, your life, everything that you have in your future? I mean, have you really given him permission to take over and to do, do work and you go to work and you begin changing you? Have you entered through the narrow gate? And I, and I know as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, I'm not sure if I've entered through the narrow gate. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, I'm positive. I know the answer to this question. But wherever you are, you need to ask a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is, um, and this is how you answer for sure, the first question is, which path are you actually on? I mean, if you go to Matthew 7, 13 to 14, he makes it very clear. Like these two paths, the, 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 the wide gate, easy path, the narrow gate, hard path, they're, they're so distinct, it's impossible to get them mixed up. And it's very easy to tell which one you're on. So, so look at chapter 7 again. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. Verse 14, he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So he says, those who find this, this narrow path that leads to life are few. So the narrow path, the narrow path, it's not popular. That's why it's narrow. It's not narrow because God doesn't want many people walking on it. It's narrow because not many people choose to walk on it. I mean, think about going through the woods, you know. The more you travel on a path, the more it it, it gets dug down the more it widens out. But a path that's not traveled very much, it's going to be kind of grass. In fact, if you ever run over at North Lakes, uh, there's kind of a crossover path between the sidewalk and the, and the dam, and, and it's not very well worn. Um, but it's just like that. It's a narrow path because not many people choose to travel on it. Jesus has a huge fan base in Denton, but not many followers. Just because there's a crowd doesn't necessarily mean that God is doing something awesome. In fact, sometimes the presence of a crowd can mean the absence of God. I mean, you look at the stuff that he says. His message isn't the most popular. In fact, it's never been that popular. And oftentimes, when the truth is preached, the crowds leave. That's proven to be true in Scripture. That's proven to be true all throughout history. Could it be that this popular form of Christianity that we have embraced in our culture isn't Christianity at all? If your life 
looks no different than the non-believing people around you, then you are not walking on the narrow path. But he also says the, the narrow path, the way is hard that leads to life. So he describes the narrow path as being hard. And this might be the most convicting thing about this text to me. Following Jesus is not easy. I don't know where we got the idea that it's easy. In fact, if your life is easy, it's probably because you're not following Jesus. So let me ask you, are you following Jesus? Better yet, let me ask you this, do you even want to follow Jesus? If you want an easy life, Jesus is not your guy. But that being said, if you choose the easy life, you, you need to make sure that you're aware of what you're giving up. Luke 13, 30, this is another record of, of this exact same conversation Jesus was having, just recorded by Luke. And he says, at the end of it, he records that Jesus said, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Uh, Matthew 19 records Jesus saying, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. So in other words, you might have a lot in this life, but if you don't choose Jesus, it, it will seem like you're first in this life, but you're going to be last in the next life. Matthew 16, 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, famous pastor who lived uh, a few years back, he said, it, it's, a poor, it's a poor kind of person who wants only the easy and avoids the difficult. Like, you might feel rich now, but in the end, you're poor. So which path are you on? Are, are you on the wide or the narrow path? Are you on the popular or the unpopular path? Are you on the easy or on the hard path? Again, Jesus is very clear, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's where we've got to start tonight. Have you entered through the narrow gate? Now, as I'm saying this, I know that some of you are thinking, what in the world does this have to do with us dating, mating, and procreating? Listen to me. It has everything to do with it. Your convictions, your true convictions, they don't just affect certain aspects of your life. Your true convictions affect every part of your life. And so many people, so many of you, claim to be on the narrow road, having passed through the narrow gate, yet you're dating and pursuing relationships in the exact same way that everyone who's on the wide path, having passed through the wide gate, is pursuing relationships and dating. And if your dating life is not being impacted by your convictions about Jesus, then one of two things is true. Either one, you don't really have any convictions about Jesus, or two, you're yet to learn how to let your convictions drive your decisions and drive your actions. Because the reality is, as believers, the way that we date should be totally different than the way the rest of culture dates. Everything about our lives should be different. Jesus doesn't just affect part of your lives. I know this sounds so cliche, but Jesus doesn't just affect your life on Tuesday night. He doesn't just affect your life on Sunday morning. He affects every aspect of your life. 
So if the way that you date looks just like the way a non-believer dates, you have to go back to the critical question of which path you on. And the reason that's a critical question is because the path that you're on determines what gate you came through. And the reason what gate you came through is so important is because that tells you what your final destination is. Because he says here, one gate and one path leads to where? Destruction. And the other gate and the other path leads to where? Life. Now all that being said, I know that a lot of you in this room genuinely do desire to follow Jesus. He has saved you. He is in the process of sanctifying you. You have crossed through that gate. He has saved you. You're now on that path, learning to walk on the narrow path. He's in the process of sanctifying you. Yet, all you know about dating is what's been modeled for you. All you know about dating is what's been preached to you by the surrounding culture. So this is so great that this happened yesterday. I'm sitting in a coffee shop yesterday and um, kind of working on this message, I needed a lot of caffeine, so I like, you know, basically had the coffee pot sitting right here, and just, anyways. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking, and I'm, I'm steady, and I'm doing some stuff for tonight, and uh, there's three people that sit down kind of behind me to the side, uh, two girls and a guy, and they start to talk about, they, they apparently all three had these mutual two friends, and they made it, I, I, I don't remember anything they, they were talking about, they were, they were planning out some party that they were about to have, but uh, they were talking about these two friends of theirs, who very early on in the conversation, they, they said, yeah, they're Christians. And, um, and they were talking about how they're dating each other. But then they were like, literally saying things like, it's so weird though, their relationship. It's like, like he lives in this, I was, the girl, the, one of the girls, she was like, yeah, I was talking to the, to the guy the other day, I'm not gonna say their names, but I was talking to the guy the other day and he, and he lives in this efficiency uh, apartment and, and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, let, I don't let her in my apartment. I just, I just don't want to mess with that. And I was like, man, that's so mean. You don't let your own girlfriend in your apartment. That's what this girl's saying. And then, and then he goes, yeah, actually, um, like last week her water heater went out in her apartment. So um, the girl was like, well, surely, like you would let her come over and use your water heater and shower at your place. And he's like, nope. Cold showers for my girlfriend all week long. <laughs> and the girl, you know, she's like, that's crazy. Like, what's wrong? You know, like, what's? wrong with you and so they begin to have this conversation about how their relationship looks so in their terms weird and different and I'm loving this by the way um but but they so then they start talking about this like right here and at this point like I've literally pulled out my notepad and I'm writing down everything they're saying <laughs> and uh, I mean I've got it here at the church I can show you and I'm starting to kind of lean back in my chair you know like uh, total spy mode so beware if you're at a coffee shop and I'm there I'm probably listening but uh anyway so they start to talk about that they had this discussion about this, this couple's sex life and, or lack of sex life. And so they start, to, the girl goes, you know, I just, I fear, she's being so sincere, seriously. And I'm not making fun of her. I'm just, I want you to know, she was being so sincere. She's like, I really feel for this couple because I'm concerned. She goes, I'm concerned that, so like they're going to get married and they're going to have sex. And then like, th that's going to be it. They're, they're not going to like how they had sex with each other, and the marriage isn't going to last. And the guy goes, the guy goes, listen, I'm, I'm really not making fun of him. The guy goes, Oh, yeah, man, because you know they haven't had sex. And then the other girl goes, yeah, and I know that, like, sex isn't the most important thing in a relationship, but, like, you have to figure out if you're compatible. Like, no, I'm, I'm, look, this is not meant to be a joke. I mean, it's cool y'all laughing, but it's, I'm not trying to be, like, funny. This is a real conversation. And, and first of all, so they said, they, they named the girl's name, and it's not a very popular name. And we have a girl by this name that's, I think, even here tonight. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting over there. I almost go, yes, uh, when they said her name, thinking, you know, kind of this 
proud papa moment of like, oh, we got two of our students who are being, you know, they look different in their relationship and they're setting an example. That's great. But then they said her boyfriend's name and I know that's not who this girl's dating. So uh, unless she's kind of got this thing going on on the side. But anyways, you know, I share that conversation because that's not really that unusual of a conversation. You know, I, I, I was watching Friends the other night, and for, for me, in high school, Friends was my show. That was my jam. I mean, I watched that thing, and it, it was, to me, I loved the show, and I'm watching it the other night, and I mean, I know that this is like, I mean, the whole show is about sex, really, and I know that, but there's this one episode, and I don't, doesn't matter which one it was, but like, I, it's like it hit me, oh my gosh, like, this is the whole message of this TV show. And that's what was being preached to me in high school daily, because I watched two or three episodes daily in high school. And, and now we know it's worse. So, so the point I'm getting at is the conversation at the coffee shop, that's not a very unusual conversation. I mean, we are very familiar with how culture says that we should date. But the question is, what does the Bible say? Like, what should our relationships look like? Like, like how should we date uh, you know, how should it all go down? How long, you know, guys, should you wait before you call the girl after your first date? I mean, do you go with the three-day rule? Do you go with the one-week rule? Do you go with the three-month rule? I mean, what do you do? There's different rules out there. Depends on which, you know, website you look at or who you talk to. Uh, you know, how long do you wait for that first kiss? And some of you guys are like, well, hold up, man. Like, what about the holding hands part? Because that's kind of scarier than the first kiss, you know. Which, by the way, the holding hands part is a very significant, significant part of the relationship. Honestly, uh, this is like really the real DTR because you can tell by the way uh, they hold your hand back wh- where the relationship's going. I mean, if you reach out there, which that's a whole terrifying situation just to get you to reach out and hold her hand. But if you reach out there and, and she's like, oh, dude, what are you doing? I thought we were just friends. First of all, guys, that's where you just play it cool. Like, I, I'm sorry. I, no, I had something on my hand. I was just trying to wipe it off. Uh, but if she does that, you know the relationship's not going anywhere. Or if she does this, this is the other, this relationship isn't going where you think it is, move. So you hold her hand and she kind of holds it for two seconds. Definitely no waffle, just like cup fingers here. <laughs> but she holds it for like two seconds and then she's like, oh, sorry, I have an itch. And then she itches her nose and then she doesn't put her hand back down there, you know. Uh, that's, you know, the relationship's not going anywhere. But if you, if you hold her hand and she, she leaves it there. And let me tell you this, this is when you know you're golden. If you hold her hand and then she starts to do that little thumb thing where it's kind of slowly. Now, if she, goes to the, if she goes to the move the thumb back and forth thing too quick, you need to get out of that relationship because she's way too clingy, okay? But I mean, how soon is too soon to kiss? How soon is too soon to hold the hand? Or I get this question all the time. How soon is too soon to sleep together? I mean, should, and then, and then the other end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum is this. Should we even date at all? I mean, some of you guys are like, yeah, I went and asked out this girl the other day. You know, you want to go out on a date? She's like, um, I'm not looking for somebody to date. I'm looking for somebody to court. And you come back and you're like, dude, I don't even know what that means. Was she talking about basketball or what is that, you know? So do we date? Do we court? What do we call it if, if we're going to do it? And, and, and it all comes back to this. What does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say when it comes to dating? And are you ready for your answer? Here it is. Nothing. The Bible says nothing. Um, now, it might be helpful to get a little bit of context here on, on this whole idea of dating. Um, dating, one, it, it finds its origins um, in prostitution, by the way, just so you know. 
But dating didn't really even begin until the 1920s. Now, there's like a whole like evolution of how uh, dudes went about finding girls to marry and all this stuff throughout history. But like speeding up to the 1900s, before the 1920s, uh, there was really, dating wasn't a, a thing. Maybe early 1910s, like around that area, dating wasn't a thing. That was kind of the uh, beginning of dating. Before, that, before dating, men would go, they called it, I think they called it like calling on or calling a, a, a woman. And, and what they would do is they would basically ask the family's permission to, to begin um, pursuing the girl. And what the family would do is they would either say, heck no, or they would say, yeah, come into our house. And they would invite the man into the house and the man would then begin the process um, over a period of time of getting to know the woman by hanging out in their living room or hanging out on the porch and getting to know the woman around the family. The key here is the man would be invited in to the family, into the house. But when dating came into play, 1910s, 1920s, everything changed. No longer was it you were invited in, but the man would come and take the girl out. Just see if you're with me. They would take the girl out, and this changed everything because now the, the, you can just kind of see maybe how there's a domino effect here of over time, that relationship begins to, to get more and more isolated, and, and it's not happening, you know, under the supervision, would you, of the family or things like that. Um, so now the men are taking them out, and then there's a few other things that happen along the way, but I think one of the more significant ones is 1960 to 1990-ish, kind of this sexual, sexual revolution time. Now, I was actually in staff meeting today. We were talking about the baby boomer generation, and uh, basically, like, it's called that generation because babies were just, like, booming out everywhere, you know? Um, weird picture, but uh, so the baby boomer generation. But the baby boomer generation ended around the 1960s, and, and Jeff, our pastor, he goes, awesome, why do you think it ended? Like, I know. Uh, but he goes, why do you think it ended? And, uh, and the answer was the, the end of that generation, the baby boom generation, was the birth control pill. So, so now, uh, sex becomes way less risky um, because now, you know, you can, I'm, I'm putting quotes around this, but you can have sex and, and there's a less likelihood of her getting pregnant. So this sexual revolution comes into play. You follow my train of thought here? Sexual revolution comes into play and now sex is less risky. So that changes the landscape of dating, which has already changed from calling. And then you get to the technology age here, 1990 and on, and that changes everything. Uh, now they kind of call it the hookup culture, obviously. I mean, that, now there's, there's a thing of hooking up, and that can mean a million different things. But as culture has evolved, the point is so has the way that we date. And quite possibly the greatest byproduct of the evolution of dating or how you go about pursuing the opposite sex, quite possibly the greatest byproduct is the creation of a whole new relationship category called dating. Um, and Facebook has really helped... Uh, elevate that and the drama surrounding that a whole lot more because prior to Facebook in 2004, 2005, 2006, uh, it didn't matter if you were in a relationship or it was complicated or whatever the heck you can do on Facebook. But now so many relationships are dying because the guy doesn't want to put in a relationship or in a rela whatever. Anyways, drama around that. So, but, but quite possibly the greatest byproduct of the evolution of the way that we pursue the opposite sex is the creation of a whole new relationship category called dating. And let me explain why that's significant. In the Bible, God has given us three relationship categories. Three relationship categories in the Bible, very clear. Family relationships, neighbor relationships, 
and marriage relationships. Now, we don't have time to, to go, go in there and break down where everyone is and where all those are in Scripture, but it's all over Scripture. It's very clear in Scripture. There's, there's really no, um, there's no ambiguity in that in Scripture. So three relationship categories, family relationships, neighbor relationships, marriage relationships. And, and here's the thing. Every human being that you come into contact with on this planet fits into one of those categories. So if they're not your blood relative or you're not married to them, then that means that they are your neighbor according to the biblical categories of relationships. Now this is important because each category has very clear and set boundaries as defined by scripture when it comes to how we treat the other person and especially when it comes to sexual relations with the other person. Now again, we don't have time to chop up and and look at every place where this is shown in scripture, but again, it's very clear in scripture. Family relationships, sexual relations are Prohibited. Neighbor relationships, sexual relations are prohibited. Marriage relationships, sexual relations are actually commanded. Praise Jesus. Now culture, <laughs> culture has muddied the water for us on this. They've created confusion. Culture has muddied the water for us by convincing us that dating is more than just something that you do. Culture has convinced us that dating is actually something that you are. They've created, we have created a new relationship category. And this new relationship category implies that there is a new set of boundaries, guidelines, and standards for how you interact with the person of the opposite sex within that relationship category. It it especially affects or implies that there's a new set of boundaries, guidelines, standards for purity within this new relationship category. But the reality is this. This relationship category of dating doesn't even really exist. So, though you might be going out on dates with somebody, your relationship with them still falls within one of those three God-given relationship categories that is in Scripture. So, assuming you're not married to that person, unless you're one of those like cheesy married couples that says, we still go out on dates, I'm dating my wife. Um, assuming you're not one of those cheeseball couples, then that means that you, since you're not married to that person, that means you're bound to the standards and guidelines that God has set for the family, neighbor, relationship categories. Are you following my train of thought here? So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Paul, he's writing and he's talking about how we interact with, with these people. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. He might as well say there, treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Or to the ladies, he might say, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers. Now, I'm going I'm to go with the, the guy version here. Treat older women as mothers. Now, some of you guys are like, well, dang, I'm dating a girl that's older than me, so uh, that's weird. Um, and some of you girls are like, I'm dating a guy who's younger than me, and he does kind of treat me like his mother, and I'm tired of taking care of him and cleaning up after him. <laughs> but what I think is so great about this, and, and the way that Paul describes this, the way Scripture describes this, these three very clear relationship categories, um, I overheard a conversation this summer. Someone, someone, um, someone was saying, I don't remember, it was, I think it was some of y'all, so you, one or two of you would be like, oh, that was totally us. Um, but, but someone said that their mom when they started dating, told them to, to not do anything with their girlfriend that they couldn't picture themselves doing with their mom. 
So basically what they said was, basically what they said was before, the mom said to this guy, before you do something with your girlfriend, I want you to pause. And I want you to picture yourself doing that with me. And if you can't picture yourself doing that with me, then do not do that thing you're about to do with her. Now, I sure hope that rules out a lot of stuff. But on a very serious note, on a very serious note, this so drastically clears everything up. I mean, one, it gives us a very objective, not subjective, but a very objective, very clear answer to the question, how far is too far? And it gives us a much clearer direction for how we should go about dating, courting, or whatever you want to call it. So let me ask you this. Should we date at all? Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to suggest that dating is a good thing on this condition. Don't see it as something that you are, but something that you do. In other words, don't see it as a category, but as an activity. Now, we can't stop there. We've got to take it just like a little bit further. Um, and, And again, without trying to answer every stinking question that you have about dating, um, We've got to take this further because it's, so, because it's so important for us to maintain the boundaries of the neighbor-family relationship category. There's some changes that we've got to make in how we date. And, and here's why. If we date like the rest of culture dates, which most of you in this room, that's how you date, then we're going to run into tons of problems. And here's why. Culture has no regard for the boundaries set by the neighbor-family relationship in Scripture. So as we close, I just want to give you five suggestions to help you maintain those boundaries. And if you want some great reading material, um, all five of these suggestions come out of a book uh, called Sex, Dating, and Relationships by Highstand and Thomas. Um, But five suggestions, here you go. Number one, get accountability. And here's why. Sin thrives in isolation. Godly and wise counsel and accountability will play a vital role in helping you and the person you're going out on dates with to date the right way. So one, get accountability. Number two, avoid alone time. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. So like if you live in an efficiency apartment, that dude, man, I want to meet him and I want to shake his hand. Because that's awesome. Avoid the alone time. Um, Plan ahead so that You're not suddenly catching yourself in a situation where you don't know where to go, what to do, and now you're alone. Uh, Number three, be outward facing. And here's what I mean. Your relationship should not be all about your relationship. Did you hear what I said? Be outward facing. Your relationship should not be all about your relationship. I'll never forget this uh, couple. I went to school in Arkansas. um, And... uh, Anyways, this, this couple always, they would, they, would, they would eat in the cafeteria, and it was like, we called them the pretzel couple, because uh, they would always be wrapped up in each other's arms, like eating, you know, and she'd be eating, and sometimes she, her spoon would end up in his mouth, and his spoon would end up in her mouth, and they'd feed each other. It was weird, like, they're just the pretzel couple. But, like, nothing else in the world existed. And I know you're laughing at that, and hopefully there's not any extremes like that in the, in the room, but a lot of you, your relationship is all about your relationship. You need to be outward facing. 
Um, one of the quotes from this book, High Stand and Thomas, they say, a healthy relationship is comfortable being in community. Your marriage should one day be used for others. Start to live that way from the start. Kind of this idea of learning early to be missional with your life. I mean, that's what Christ has called us to anyways. Number four, begin at the right time. And, and here's what this means. Don't start dating somebody until you know that you're in a position to or soon to be in a position to get married. And here's why. So if you start dating and you are nowhere close to being in a position to get married, um, and, and you and this girl, y'all just, y'all end up being crazy about, you, about each other, and you're like, yeah, let's, we want to get married, but you're not financially ready or, you know, school's just, you, you just know you can't get married until you're done with school or whatever the limitations may be. Now you have a much longer period that you have to wait and hold back on than you would if you had waited to date and, until you were in a position where you were close to being ready to be married. Um, and number five, keep it short. Again, High Stan and Thomas, they say, engagement exists for one purpose only, and that's to plan a wedding. Too many Christian couples are sacrificing their purity on the altar of a perfect wedding day. Once she says yes, make a beeline to the altar. Get accountability, avoid alone time, be outward facing, begin at the right time, and keep it short. So, I feel like there's one big thing to take away, but I also feel like there's kind of two things to take away. I mean, essentially the big thing is this, our lives should look different. I mean, if you really are following Jesus, your life should look different. Um, so that's the question. I mean, I mean, which path are you walking down? Are you on the wide path, the one that's popular and easy, or are you on the narrow path, the one that's hard and not so popular? Are you on the wide path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life? Which path are you on? And, and I think a great way to figure that out real quick is to look at the way you're handling your relationships. I, I hope that this has been beneficial. It's been beneficial to me to study this. Um, but let's, let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.